Hello and welcome to the first Herpetological Highlights in the Interviews, a sort of bonus set of shows we'll be doing alongside our main Herpetological Highlights where we have a look and talk to some of the people involved in uh, herpetoculture and herpetological research and conservation, basically anybody who will uh, let us talk to them and ask them questions. As usual, I'm Ben, I'm Ben Marshall and got Tom Major backing me up. And this week, we're rather fortunate to interview John the Gecko Wrangler McGrath, who is the publisher of a new digital magazine called iHerp. We've mentioned it before on the show, and uh, we got the chance to talk to him a little bit about how he got started in the herpetological game, a little bit about the magazine, and a few of his interesting adventures around Asia and Australia. So uh, without further ado... Here's the interview. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us, John, uh, our first ever interviewee. We'll uh, we'll just get started into the questions, if that's all right with you. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So um, you've you've sort of been involved in the course of your career in various sort of herpetology-related writings. Um, Quite an impressive list that you sent us, actually. Uh, So we were just hoping you could give our listeners kind of a a little breakdown of what it is you've been involved with. I made a lot of it up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I'm probably like a lot of people in that, you know, um, uh, people involved in the hobby tend to sort of uh, get gravitate or get co-opted into doing things that maybe they're more suited to. And, you know, like, so you find that a lot of wildlife photographers, you know, initially started out with, as a hobbyist that was that had some interest in keeping and then combined that with their sort of their f- photography skills and ended up, uh, there's a number of them that I can think of that, that you know, have, have, have since turned into extremely good wildlife photographers. I got asked to um, write articles initially for um, for a magazine called Reptiles Australia here, which was there's only which was only the only reptile reptile magazine or herd magazine in the country at the time. So initially, I, I was just doing a bit of writing on, on to, to as fill in articles, and because they needed material, and then I got asked to do to to uh, to proofread it. Uh, and then subsequently edit it and uh, still contributed, you know, articles. A second magazine was then started up in competition in, in Australia, Scales and Tales, and, and that, and it, and it kind of, the two existed alongside for a while. Uh, the first publisher of Reptiles Australia was, was had, had problems in his business model. So then Scales and Tales uh, became the only magazine I was then asked to, to edit that, that, it was a pretty good magazine, but it went sort of travelled along for until last year for about five years or so, and that mm. then subsequently um, assisted because of again because of problems that the, the publisher had with their model. And, I, and I, as I said, I'll get to that. And and then I kind of thought about it for a while for a year, and uh, and sort of came up with a slightly different model. So that's why I've, what I'm, I launched to Australia um, about four months ago. Now. So I guess over the course of the last 15, 20 years, I've been doing a lot of writing but and editing, contributed to to, to uh, a book, uh, a pretty well-known book on Australian, Keeping and Breeding Australian Lizards. I did the gecko section of that, and I've edit, since edited a couple of other books for people as well. So um, it's kind of, uh, you know, you, you initially what might have seemed that, uh, you know, someone thought you might have been appropriate to, to take on the task, it kind of... Uh, you know, if you if you have an interest and you have a bit of a bent for it, I, I guess you sort of just uh, sort of keep going down that line, you know. Right. It it kind of happens naturally. It's yeah. Just a, it's a progression, and all of a sudden, it's it's snowballed into something enormous. To well, I don't know about enormous, but to to use a word that's sort of really really overused these days, it was kind of organic, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Very nice. And so uh, you've kind of ended up with I Hurt Magazine, which is the uh, fully digital online magazine that you're currently publishing. Yeah, so so what what happened with the previous two magazines, and there was a third that was very short lived as well. Um, and 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 the shortcomings were basically centered around the, the publishers themselves in, in in a number of ways. And I don't mean this to be sort of derogatory in any fashion, but none of them really had connections within the uh, sort of herpetological community. Um, right. They all wanted. The kudos that goes with you know, publishing the magazine, they wanted to be the, the sort of big person, the figurehead, if you like. 
uh, and they also wanted to sort of stick their their feet underneath the big desk and um, and direct traffic. And really, for for mm. for a small mm. magazine, uh, you know, you you kind of need to do everything. You know, you can't sit there and pay everybody to do everything, uh, and then go on overseas trips and things like that because it just doesn't. It's just not sustainable. I think that's that's the issue. Plus, you've got to have a genuine interest, and you've got to be able to use that platform. I think to sort of um, uh, to involve other other things and other sort of projects, and to, to to do some, you know, to do a little bit of good. If yeah, look, Trevor Hagen recently was over here, who who's involved with Exeter and that sort of thing, the Hagen family. And I met him at a trade night, and he said, um, you know, with Exeter, he said, if you're not genuine. Uh, and you're not authentic, and you're not interested in the, in, in the industry you're in. Well, then you get found out pretty quickly. And I, th- I think that's kind of. I think he's got a point. You know. Yeah, absolutely. So this magazine, really, my model is all about. You know, we're not going to ask people to pay to subscribe. Uh, the others were all hard copies, and I guess that's in, in, in a way. Although there were some some emags, you know, in today's world. Uh, um, Hard copies of magazines are sort of dwindling, so I thought, you know what, let's let's just do an emag, let's 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 make it free, right? So so no one has any um, reason not to push the button and subscribe. It's not costing them anything. It's not sort of uh, taking anything anything out of their day, or, or they just you know like it, 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 there's no reason not to. So so we'll yeah. we'll get to, we'll play a numbers game. We'll get the most people we can uh, um, hitting um, uh, downloads or, or looking at the magazine or readers or whatever. Uh, and then we'll just rely on um, uh, um, advertising to, to generate a bit of income. Now, now, since that time, we've sort of, because we've been asked by collectors, and you know, you'd be aware there's, 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 in, especially in herpetology, there's, there's, there's book collectors and, and people out there who, who must have a hard copy of every publication that goes back to, you know, the origin of species. And, and so we've <laughs> yeah. been doing, you know, a hundred or two hundred copies of, uh, of hard copies, which we've been selling, which are obviously quite expensive to produce in small numbers, but. But that's sort of contributing a little bit to revenue as well. And that's going down pretty well as well. So, yeah. So who knows? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. And me and Ben were actually saying the other day, like, um, as you flick through it, the fact that it has got so many adverts in it kind of adds to the authenticity of it because that's kind of what you associate with reading a magazine. So it kind of adds to the effect in a way. Well, look, um, there's 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 people who uh, who have jumped on board, uh, you know, right from the start, who are on a bit of a wing of prayer, really, because um, they don't know what's going to happen. I can't tell them what's going to happen. So, uh, I mean, we're, we're really kind of grateful that some of these guys, that we've got a, or obviously our overheads are not huge at all, but, um, and, and, and I, you know, I do a lot of it. I do a lot of the, the, the design as well as editing and a bit of writing and that sort of thing. Um, and that's to save costs. You know, we've got a plat- software platform that's quite expensive, and, uh, and 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 the other guy who's sort of been instrumental in, in doing this with me, Andy Round, who's um, a mate of mine, who's who's really good on IT and that sort of side of things. He's sort of uh, taken it over, and it's a bit of a, it's just a project that we've sort of floated that we, you know, none of us has de- neither of us has derived anything out of it um, as yet. Hopefully, um, you know, there's there's a little bit of reward, but um, it's kind of uh, uh, just a project that we sort of. Um, you know, sort of floated, and, and and we don't know where it's going, but but it's all good, you know. Um, yeah. So so I mean those 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 advertisers, sorry, those advertisers that came on board right at the, the start. I mean, we are obviously very very grateful to those people who sort of taking a punt. Um, and and, and we've yeah. since and we've since got, uh, you know, with every issue we've added a couple more, and some of them are you know like a quite uh, quite. Credible or important um, sort of advertisers for us, so so, so it's it's all good, you know. Yeah, mm. cool. I realise uh, we kind of we kind of jumped the gun a little bit, getting into your uh, magazine um, publishing. We do you reckon you could uh, just give us sort of a brief lowdown of why it is you're so interested in uh, reptiles in general? Like, how did you how did you get? Presumably, you're hooked. How did you get hooked? Um. Well, look, I mean, I. I, I I, my, I suppose the earliest things I remember was I, I grew up in England uh, until I was about ten, and we came over here um, in uh, with the first fleet um, in seventeen seventy or whatever it was. Um, <laughs> uh, I, the only things I can remember as a kid was I mean obviously you've got a lack of stuff there, native herbs, but I remember um, being fascinated with snow worms, uh, slow worms, and, uh, and newts, 
and and, and uh, trying to find a, and I think I found a great a great crested newt once, which was a big find. And going on search for adders, but never finding one, you know. And then, of course, when we moved here when I was ten, it was like, um, you know, I, I read uh, all the um, books that I could find that I bought, you know, prior to coming out here on on, on the boat, and I read them all backwards, so I knew more about uh, Australian herps than, than, than most people, well, just about anybody my age. I, I, I knew at the time, even when I arrived here, you know. So, and then. Uh, look, ever since then, I mean, it's a, there was there was stuff to catch here, you know, outside your back door at that time. And this there, there was uh, uh, where we lived, there was uh, a significant amount of undeveloped land around us. Um, we were in the suburbs, but you know, there was a, a horse adjustment, and there was a bit of na- you know bushland, that sort of thing. And and there was lots of lots of frogs. There was there were snakes. There was uh, uh, there was blue tongues. Um, uh, you know, um, and you, we had a holiday block where I could catch um, Jackie dragons and things like that. So I had a whole bunch of stuff that, uh, and there was no licensing required at that time for, 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 for reptiles. So I had a whole bunch of stuff, including geckos and, and some exotic stuff like, uh, you know, like axolotls. So we can't keep exotic reptiles here, but I, I, I was keeping a lot of stuff, you know, um, and um, in, including, uh, including a lot of African cichlids, which I, I kept lots and lots of tanks of, um, Oh really? Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, then when I got sort of more interested and became sort of like um, I needed to sort of uh, pay for my hobby. Well, it, you know, I needed to put something back into it, drive a little bit of income to keep it going. Uh, the the cichlids or the or the um, or the reptiles had to win out. And um, um, when I sort of was put an extension on the house here, I, I I sort of had to figure which one it was going to go. And, and I went down the reptile course because. There are still a lot of cichlids that, that um, can be imported here um, from overseas. And you kind of, with fish, you, you need a lot of grow-out tanks. You, you grow them up for a long time, for a year. Um, you know, cichlids are aggressive. So what happens is you end, you get 100 fry, you grow them up for a year, you end up with 25. Um, you go back to the, the place where you bought them from at $75 each and he offers you $5 each for them because he can bring them in from overseas. Hmm. Meantime, your male has killed your female and you're back to square one, you know. So, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good business model. No, uh, no, no, hardly. Um, uh, uh, yeah, um, I, it, it's, it's probably one that's been used by a few magazine publishers over the years. Anyway, um, <laughs> but but reptiles. I mean, there's a few. There was a few reasons why they won. I suppose because firstly, because um, I've always been really interested in Australian geckos. Number one, uh, number two. Uh, they are unique to this country, and 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 there's no uh, import export. So, um, you know, it's, and you have the opportunity to sort of see some in the wild sometimes too. So, so that that uh, and the other thing is you breed them. There's no the market here is not really big enough to have any uh, any um, large scale commercial breeders like like the ones in in America, for example. Um, so, the market relies on hobbyist breeding breeding animals. So. The other thing is you can – most um, reptiles are pretty much self-sufficient. The minute they hatch or are born, you know, once they're feeding after two or three weeks, you can sell them. So so there's a, there's a lot of reasons. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it seems like an inevitability that at the age of 10, you move, you move to Australia. If I caught a blue tongue in my back garden when I was 10, <laughs> yeah, I, I can't imagine that. It would be somewhat, one that escaped from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. So um, – You've kind of alluded there to your kind of uh, gecko business, and that's why people uh, call you the gecko wrangler. Um, yeah, I started that because Steve Steve Irwin was calling himself the crocodile hunter, so I, I tongue in cheek started calling myself the gecko wrangler because um, I figured you know geckos were almost as dangerous as crocodiles, so I could make out they were, and I sort of <laughs> I had visions of um, some sort of uh, photo of me with a whip and a chair or something trying to beat off savage geckos, you know. Um, <laughs> so <coughs> so after a while. Uh, 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 you know, so to my amusement, I, some people even started calling me the Wrangler, and I thought, well, this is pretty good. This is a bit like I've kind of made it now because I've got a one-word <laughs> name, like a bit like Pink or Prince or you know the Flea or or, or something like that. You know, so uh, yeah, it's it's just it's just it's been a bit of a joke. Oh, that's that's cool though. So, um, what what species of geckos do you actually work with? <clears throat> well, I've sort of cut back a lot now because I, um. Uh, I had a I've I've had a lot a large collection for a long long time and uh, um, and so I, the captive breeding there's a number of reasons for it okay so number one 
the rules and regulations about captive licensing in, in Australia are, are different in every state. And um, there is a list of animals you can work with in every state, and it differs in every state. The list in Victoria is quite small, and, and, and they um, to, to get additional uh, animals onto that list is very difficult. So consequently, I've had every, well, just about, I think I've had every species of, uh, of gecko on that list in Victoria, along with a bunch of other stuff, and I've bred it and done other things and things like that. So for me to get something that I haven't worked with before is going to be really difficult. Uh, well, it, it was going to be impossible until they put new stuff on the on the on the list. Uh, when they do put new stuff on the list, it's unlikely that it's go that I'm going to be able to do anything that that anyone hasn't done in another state because it'll be an animal that people have already had in other states for a long time. Hmm. Okay. So, is there a particular reason Victoria is so strict on its on its species list compared to other states, or is that uh, well, just, okay, just luck, so, of the, luck of the draw? Uh, probably luck of the draw. I mean, look, you know, I look. None of the none of the states are uh, particularly. I think it's I, I think it's just bad luck. Uh, I don't think that it means that the people in Victoria are any better or worse. Um, they're bureaucrats, and the problem is that people who mm. make the laws regarding wildlife um, are, are not people who even even generally have a passing interest in wildlife or could tell you anything about them. So, um, for example, I know I, I've I've had people. Um, I had them do an inspection. I had the, the reptile police do an inspection here once, and um, they said, oh, um, I had a cage labelled um, Astrophorus ciliaris, and they said, oh, you're not allowed to keep that. And I said, well, well I am. Um, but unfortunately, the generic name you use is Diplodactylus, which, you know, everyone else has dropped 30 years ago. So, <laughs> yeah. so they didn't know what they were looking at is what I'm saying, you know, and they thought they didn't recognise yeah. the name. Now... That, that, and that's not unique to Australia, to Victoria either because at one stage um, Queensland wanted to they wanted to, to, to add a few species to, to the list or, or be able to, to sell a few species in shops. So one of them was uh, was a common gecko that the knobtail gecko um, and the furus levissimus, right oh, no sorry and the furus levis, which is called the, the three line knobtail or the, or the, or the, the pale knobtail sometimes. But the confusion in, in common names, um, they, uh, um, and this is a this is a you know this is a trap for someone who who really doesn't know what they're doing. So they used common names and then translated those back to scientific names rather than the other way around. And yeah. they looked up pale knobtail and, and they found and sometimes that's 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 applied to levis as well as levissimus. And so they end up adding the wrong wrong gecko to the list, which is Levisimus, which is extremely um, rare in, in captivity and difficult to, 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 to keep. And it's an advanced sort of animal instead of the common one. So that just right. goes to show you. The other thing is Victoria, another good example is Victoria used to use for a long time and it's changed now, but they used to use um, uh, um, uh, Cogger, the, the, the sort of reptile bible here, um, to determine names. So what happened was because they didn't recognise um, uh, subspecies, uh, and this caused a couple of problems a few times because uh, it would become apparent elsewhere that different species or, you know, one species had been split into four or into a number of subspecies. Now, that would mean in Victoria that we, in theory, we may not be able to keep the species or we shouldn't be allowed to keep it, but we could because they didn't recognise the other species. So, for example, I could, uh, I could export... This is all getting complicated, but I could export a uh, a, a Pilbarensis a knobtail gecko, like a Nephurus levis Pilbarensis. I could export that to as levis from Victoria because the, the subspecies wasn't recognised, but then the person in Queensland who received it would receive it as Pilbarensis. So I would export <laughs> an animal under one name and they would receive it under another. That's how silly it gets. Wow. So the gecko becomes a, f a fugitive in transit. Yeah, yeah, but well, it morphs in transit. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's, that's that is a bizarre system. That's so, really. Yeah, I mean, talk about confusion. That's that's just rife. <laughs> well, it, well, rife it, well it, it. it doesn't make any sense. But you know, the, but the other thing, and the other thing, I think, well, I think you know, the, the part of the whole problem is that uh, you know you have um, different levels of bureaucracy and, and, the, and in different in different areas, and and all of them want to protect their job and protect what they've got. You know. Uh, yeah. So, and they don't communicate with others. So, uh, the other the other sort of thing about that is that a lot of the time, you have to get import export permits between states, but the state 
that you're in is only concerned about your permit, not about the other person's. <laughs> so if I get an export permit, I can export the animals, whether the guy whether the guy at the other end or has got a permit or not. Usually that that's that's how it can work. You know what I mean? So so it's 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 a system which is kind of developed uh, without any real forethought or planning or, 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 or um, communication. Yeah, a sort of ad hoc mess. Correct, yeah, I mean, it, correct. It, it doesn't sound too dissimilar from just international stuff where everything's different and made up and uh, not standardised. In one way, it's it's a lot. We're, we're, we're lucky here because, you know, we're isolated and, and there's uh, there has been for... God knows how long there's been an embargo on on importing or exporting uh, um, reptiles. So that's good and bad because it means that I think it's good that we don't have exotics here because obviously if they mm. colonise, then there's an issue. You know, I mean, you've only got places like the Everglades and and, and uh, to, to sort of see what what happens there and the environmental sure. impact. But but I guess. Um, um, in certain circumstances, you know, being able to keep exotic animals is not a bad thing. I mean, if, if, if you've got an animal that gets out and is going to die, well, because of the environment that you're in, well, that doesn't really pose much of a threat. And um, in terms of conservation, <coughs> there's, um, you know, some, some of us here believe that, um, some quite high-profile people here believe that really it wouldn't be a bad thing if if keepers were considered, rather than being sort of eccentric people who uh, need to be policed and we need to sort of wave a big stick over their head, um, if, if keepers were licensed, then maybe, you know, there might be a tier system to, uh, to uh, license them in terms of uh, advanced keeper or proficient keeper or whatever, or conservation keeper. Mm. Whereas where in, you know, um, uh, some keepers could uh, hold animals that maybe had a conservation status and breed them and, and, and you know, what's that cost the government? Nothing, you know. Uh, that's a win-win. Yeah. And that could you could easily spin that to be a very, very powerful publicity tool for the government departments involved. Um, also, uh, we, could, we could make money for conservation by keepers being able to perhaps pay for export permits to send their, 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 their animals overseas. So... Rather than smuggling, which of course we know is a worldwide problem, if I breed some geckos here and I have, uh, and you, you guys have a, a, the relevant paperwork and licences and everything else, and uh, your your, your rigid dig over there, uh, and we organise to do a transfer, and maybe I pay two hundred dollars uh, in export permits for the privilege, well that money can go to conservation. So, you know, what's that done to wild stocks? Well, nothing. You know, so it, it, that that. To a certain extent, that eliminates smuggling and then eliminates the underground, and it's also helped help conservation. So, I I kind of look at keepers as a resource that is not has not been tapped, and I think that they should be. Uh, yeah, there's some people out there who do the wrong thing, but I think if it's uh, properly uh, mm. um, uh, uh, it's properly implemented, I think uh, you know rather than looking at, as, at them as a sort of a. a, a um, Looking um, from a, a glass is half empty perspective, as a lot of the bureaucrats do, if 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 yeah. they were able to look at a look at rather sort of be rather sort of um, innovative and uh, and sort of think laterally and look at in a positive outlook, I think there's a lot of people out there who could do a lot of good without costing anyone a cent, and maybe even make some kudos for the bureaucrats involved. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, could no, well de- be a, definitely could be a win-win all round. Yeah, so. Um, from what we've heard, you've done a fair amount of sort of uh, traveling and sort of herpetology-based adventuring. Um, we wondered if you could maybe tell us about some of your field herping experiences, either in Australia or abroad. Uh, have you had any particularly unusual finds? Well, I usually carry a whip and a sort of a floppy hat. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I guess I, I made a, I did a, a PowerPoint for uh, for. Uh, which I've taken around um, uh, and done at a couple of expos and things like that um, with regard to, I guess, people encouraging people to write. And that included a number of articles uh, that I've written over the last few years because, obviously, when you start off writing, I mean, look, it's easy to write. And, look, there's a place for, for, for all sorts of articles. There's a place for... I keep this, I bred it, you know, I, I bought a bearded dragon, I bought a second bearded dragon, woohoo, they turned out to be a male and a female, I bred them, I found out how to incubate them, this sort of thing. 
that that's there's mm-hmm. a place we need those sort of articles, you know, because there's always people who are new to the hobby, and you've got to you got to realise that just because you ran a bearded art, a, a dragon article five years ago and keeping them, that doesn't mean you you shouldn't run another one, you know. Um, mm. So there's always those. There's always the articles about um, I went here, I saw this. Here's the photo, you know, uh, and and, that, and that's and that's good too because it shows people what's out there, what's uh, you, you know, what sort of species are in the area. And people like to read that sort of stuff. Um, hmm. But I've sort of got a different, a slightly different perspective on it now and um, I kind of leave that to other people. And what I do is I, I kind of look for angles and look for um, things that maybe may have, have some sort of message or make people think or, or, or that sort of stuff. And a lot of the time you can find that in uh, when you're travelling around, you know, uh, so I'm going to give you a couple of examples, you know. So you've got to be on the lookout for those sort of things because they come up, those sort of opportunities come up sometimes when they're least expected, you know. So um, not necessarily in, in any order, but uh, I, I travel uh, around uh, Asia quite a bit because my wife's from Indonesia and we go back there every year or two and we usually go somewhere else. And I try and look for something that, and it's some sort of herping angle that I can find. Look, one time we were a few years ago. We were in uh, in Lombok where my wife's from, and we were just uh, getting a meal, and um, which is a very small backwater, you know. And I saw a guy hosing out what looked like a reptile cage at, near, at this sort of very very small local re- restaurant. So I went over and had a chat to him, and he was keeping toko geckos. And you know what a toko gecko is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Well, they're the they're the they're the gecko that uh, um, that gave geckos their name because their their the scientific name is gecko gecko, which is onomatopoeic. You know, it's the it's 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 the call um, that they make is is kind of like gecko. You know, so and in the same way that the name toko, which they use in uh, or toket, which they use in Indonesia and Malaysia, is also onomatopoeic because uh, they consider that. Whereas we might think the call sounds like gecko, they think it sounds like toket. So. Um, right. Anyway, this guy was this guy had some massive specimens there, so I sort of organised to um, uh, come back the next day and have a bit of a chat and take some photos. Now, and he was a bit sort of um, uh, suspicious the next day, but what it was was he was actually breeding these animals. He said he loved the animals and he was a conservationist, yeah, sure, but um, he was uh, fattening them up um, to a huge size to sell them for traditional Chinese medicine. Now, I've done a couple of articles about this uh, and uh, it's not easy to get sort of facts and figures, but um, at one point, uh, some five to ten years ago, so, you know, there was, there was some sort of propaganda put around by, by people in Asia in the traditional Chinese um, medicine market that toke geckos could cure cancer and AIDS. And in particular, it was the tongue of toke geckos. And right. for some... For some reason, there was a magical figure of, I think it was uh, somewhere like about 300 grams or 30 centimetres. There was something like that. There was a magical figure that you had to get over. And if you get over that, then animals, and, and I saw report, reports of animals being worth seven to $10,000. Now, that's one gecko. Um, wow. At the height of the trade, 1.2 million toke geckos used to be exported from Java annually. Now, you know, like I remember, because I've been sort of travelling over there for years and years, and, and, you know, the Malaysians say that, you know, a new house is blessed when a toke first first moves in. And and, and, and certainly in Indonesia and my family, that you know, they, they, they love tokes or they love having them in the houses generally because they keep down um, uh, um, insects. Um, mm-hmm. But... Uh, you can imagine what sort of impact that would have, you know, taking 1.2 million animals out annually. Now, I, uh, uh, yeah. someone else over there when I was over there roughly at the same time was building an extension on their house and said the workmen had asked if they could hunt for tokes. Now, I, they used to be all over the place, but they got really scarce and, I, and, and, I, and I'll be interested to see because I'm going over there soon as to, you know, whether, whether that's changed. But this guy told me that... Um, he was selling them for fifty thousand dollars each when he got them to that size. And and look, I think um, I think you take that with a grain of salt. But certainly these were huge, and it wouldn't surprise me if they were attracting those sort of prices. So wow. 
It became a really, you know, like I did enough. I did probably two or three articles on. I mean, you know, for a long time, geckos have been put in in wine and things like that, like in, in, around Asia, and, and snakes have too. But this was just like ramping it up to a different, and it was just symptomatic of what can happen. You know, like uh, with the, especially with the, the traditional medicine market. You know, um, uh, so it was just a good example of, of what can happen, and what you know, like an animal that wasn't really didn't have a conservation status at all can suddenly become you know, completely exploited, you know, because of some... Uh, mm. There was one report, I think, that the Toko geckos contained that was a really nefarious kind of iffy report out of China that maybe some, there was something that, uh, some extract or something that contained some uh, valuable chemical, but it was, like, never really proved and that was what they hung their hat on, you know. Someone found this and went bang, you know. So, yeah, luckily... Sure. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I saw some for sale um, again for about a dollar, and I asked the guy. And this was at um, a market in uh, in Bali, and I asked the guy there who I know who who, um, who deals in reptiles. I said, "Listen, what's happened? Is the is the status of Toko geckos changed?" And he said, "Yeah, uh, people don't believe it anymore. There's a few people who do, do but the, the market's just the <laughs> bottoms dropped out of it. So, which is which is kind of which is good. So, I mean, at least some sanity sort of." You know, uh, prevailing, I guess, but the, 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 you, you know anything mm. about the damage that's been done, you know? So there's one, yeah, there's one example. Um, uh, one that I, one I really liked was, um, um, I'd always wanted to see a, a Chinese giant salamander, and, um, uh, and I went, I've been to Beijing a couple of times, and, and, and this is not seeing a wild animal, but I, I, I couldn't see one, and, and I started doing some research before I went over there a couple of years ago and um, uh, about them, and I just got fascinated, you know. And they said there was one in the in the China, in the Beijing Zoo. When I got there, everybody in China um, who I met, and I, and, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a social. I, I have got uh, some friends over there who were who were very smart people in in, in the mining industry and um, um, uh, very smart scientists, and they and they couldn't tell me anything about the. The wawayu or the or the, the the baby fish, um, but I did get to see one in Beijing Zoo, and it was quite um, you know it was one of those things that is just a really really good snapshot because you walk in the zoo, and there's probably um, I'm thinking now there's probably four hectares worth of giant panda exhibits a minute you walk in the door. There's the Olympic <laughs> giant panda enclosure. There's the bicentennial panda enclosure. There's the you know, the president's <laughs> panda enclosure. and So there's at least sort of three panda exhibits. Um, you walk about one kilometre or more than a kilometre, 1.2 kilometres to the amphibian and reptile house, which is kind of this grey, communist-looking building. And um, it, it's kind of like the TARDIS in reverse because if you it, – it's, it's, um, it's smaller on the inside than the outside because uh, you, you walk in and it's all taken up by big – imposing stone staircases and, and facades and inside it's sort of like big sort of hallways and things like that. Um, <laughs> the Chinese giant salamander, there was, a, there was a one that was about a metre long in a four-foot tank uh, right to, in, a, in a dimly lit corner of this, this building with a small plaque on it, uh, which you, you, if you weren't looking for it, you'd never know it was there. You'd walk past it. And, and so... Um, the Wawayu is being uh, is still subject to poaching, and and, and um, there's a lot of stuff going on um, in China. There's uh, I, after that, I got in touch with um, uh, uh, Ben Tapley of London Zoo, who's got a project over there, um, a conservation project with the giant salamander, and there's all sorts of issues. You know, um, there's supposed to be farms that are farming it, but um, they're, they're not really. You know, do they farm it or do they just exploit wild socks? Um, do they really breed sure. them or do they take eggs out of the wild and just raise? Those are just raising facilities. You know, the farms, are they really doing anything as far as, you know, um, confirming the status of the animal? They've got problems because the water they use isn't isn't always clean um, and so the farms themselves can spread disease and that happened a few years ago and there's a population crash in the farms and, you know, 90-odd percent of the animals were lost. Um, but, you know, there was also there's also... Um, uh, festivals which are based around eating um, giant salamander meat. Now, I, I was thinking, you know, hang on a moment. The Chinese really don't even know about the conservation status of all this animal. They know that knows it's a delicacy. Now, you know, um, why isn't this animal on a footing with the uh, well, not necessarily on a footing, but why isn't it even half as important as the giant panda? 
you know, you've got four yeah. four hectares of, of space devoted to this iconic animal. Why isn't the why isn't the giant salamander iconic to them? You know, why isn't it got a, a house of its own, even even a small one next to the the panda exhibit? You know, so yeah, stuff like that interests me. You know, um, uh, yeah, that's that sort of stuff is is is, is what I, I kind of like to to write about and dig out now. You know, similarly in, in and I'll give you another example if you like. I'm talking a lot, but in, in Vietnam, um, I went to in Hanoi. There's uh, there's a kind of a culture of uh, eating snakes. For wildlife, okay, and and I kind of saw, I sought out a restaurant there, and um, it's it's a, it's a local thing, and as much as they believe that, that that there is you know macho manliness to be had from eating a creature like a snake, and there's wildlife restaurants where they'll serve you up porcupines and God knows anything else that flies or crawls or whatever, <laughs> and um, it's also a bit of a tourist trap. In other words, if you go to the backpackers things in Hanoi, you will find that there's Things advertising, it's a bit of a bit of a sort of rite of passage or a macho thing. Go and eat a snake, you know. And it's like, yeah, let's, let's get drunk and go and eat a cobra. Um, yeah. So I went to one of these restaurants because they're all supposed to be certified and all supposed to have certified um, um, uh, um, animals that have been bred in captivity. And I went to one, and there's, you know, they've got some cobras that they're trying to make look dangerous, and these animals just, I mean, they were pathetic. I thought, God, I'd like to see this bloke handle a brown snake, you know, because he was trying to make them look dangerous. <laughs> and they, I mean, my five-year-old daughter could could have handled them, you know. Um, but uh, we, we, I said to him, listen, I want to see your breeding facility. And and they were very suspicious of me. I think in the end they thought that I might have been representing some wildlife organisation or something like that. All I wanted to do was find out some information. They took me a couple hundred yards down the road to a, a building where they have a little potholes. It was full of potholes in this, um, uh, uh, or bolt holes, if you like, in the floor of this warehouse where they had a cobra or uh, another kind of colubrid snake in every one of them, fattening them up. And I said, fine, okay, that's fine, but where do you breed them? And they said, Oh, that's a secret facility, but you're not interested in that anyway because <laughs> because um, it's very easy to breed snakes. Well, okay, so I did some research and I found out that okay, what's happening is uh, by and large is that they're not breeding any snakes at all, and that's why they're so sheepish about it. Is that villagers are catching mm. them, selling them to them, and they're falsifying the documents. And there's a lot of raids mm. in Vietnam that, that do do go on in this regard about you know about that. Uh, um, the authorities have done some good work in, in raiding and seizing you know, wildlife. Um, so I thought, well, this was I was going to investigate that, and I thought, well, this is a bit of this is no not much good. I'm not really happy with the results of this, you know. Like I, I, I certainly didn't feel like eating a snake that had been sort of caught from the wild, you know. Um, yeah. But then in the south, um, I'd sort of heard a throwaway line about um, uh, about the locals there um, uh, catching uh, geckos or, or lizards with uh, fishing lines. So I, I, I went down. I really didn't hold that much hope of this. We're staying at a, at, at a, on a beach resort down there. But eventually I got talking to a guy about four, after about four days and he said, oh, yeah, my boss knows someone who has a, 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 um, a gecko farm. And I thought, this is interesting. And I really didn't think they would be geckos and it didn't it turn out they weren't. But this guy had, was a retired um, soldier and he just got about um, maybe 10 hectares of um, uh, dune that he'd fenced off into three pens and he was breeding butterfly lizards, which are which are fast-growing gametes, and he was breeding them, raising them, uh, and uh, he was selling them off uh, for the for the table, for the you know, market, um, and he had this little cottage industry where he was completely self-sustaining. He was, now, the butterfly lizards are not under threat by, by any means, you know, common species, but yeah. here you've got this, on one hand, you've got this, this sort of industry in, in Hanoi, which sort of promotes this uh, macho culture uh, amongst locals and tourists and, and derives, uh, you know, its income from falsifying documents for, 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 to say that they bred um, uh, animals. On the other hand, you've got this guy down there who's doing this little cottage industry and he's, he's not hurting anyone. He's, he's, he's completely um, self-sustaining and he's breeding these animals for table. And it's kind of like, so there was two pictures there, you know. What was he feeding the um, butterfly lizards? Because uh, they... they- People eat butterfly lizards in Thailand as well. And I remember wondering to myself when I heard this, if anyone was breeding them in captivity for that purpose. Yeah, well, so it's so, interesting. Yeah, and so so there was a lot of uh, interesting things. And I mean, uh, he was feeding them uh, he was feeding them fruit and flowers, basically. Right. 
Um, so they're eating a lot of vegetation. Um, and he was leaving the eggs to incubate in situ, but then he was what he was doing he was trapping the juveniles um, so that they could be moved to grow grow out pens, you know, because otherwise the the adults may eat them. Um, so it was right. interesting, you know. And I said to him, um, "Do you only sell females?" And he said, "Yeah." Um, I said, I, th- "I thought that might be the case because your males would be territorial, and you'd end up if you're keeping too many males, and the, obviously the females breed." So he had this little model where he was he was breeding them, and he was selling. I think he was. Sell- he said he was selling. He just when I when I got there, he said he just sold six hundred kilos. So. Wow. wow. So he's wow. Doing, he was doing all right, yeah. So That's a lot of lizards. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and look, I, I, they, we, we actually bought a couple. We had them cooked and that sort of stuff. They, were, they, they didn't bone them, so it was meat was okay. It was a lot of small bones. But I was happy to have one of those because this guy was doing the right thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's a legitimate industry. Fair go. Yeah. And it was providing employment to a guy who, you know, who, who was retired from the Army, so... He got him a job. He wasn't hurting anyone. He was, like I said, it was legitimate. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Wow, that's fascinating to hear. Yeah, never imagined a, a butterfly lizard farm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so with regards to um, your future aims, have you got any sort of cool, interesting projects in the works that you're excited about? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> do go on <laughs> okay so at the moment uh it's look it's quite exciting because i think look if you if you've got um if you've got a, a platform then you should use it if you can for something and um there's you may be familiar with um the research concerning um shinglebacks in south australia that's been going on for 35 years and it was um it was it was conducted by um, well by a group of people led by um, a professor Mike uh, Mike Bull from Flinders University. Yes, yeah, they featured on a BBC documentary, I think. About, yeah, uh, Attenborough, yeah. Attenborough got his face on it. it was, you know, so yep. Um, <laughs> so we all know, we all know now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so now it's famous, of course. Um, but look, at, um, it's 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 possibly the longest running lizard survey in the world, I'm told, um, and. Uh, as, as well as revealing a lot of the really interesting sort of um, uh, behaviours of shinglebacks um, in their, you know, obviously they're monogamous and, uh, uh, and you know, they have territories. That they're quite good at navigating back to their own territory. Um, they are very long-lived, things like that. But also because of the sheer uh, length or duration of the project so far, um, you're also able to sort of compare impacts of other figure, uh, factors like Climate change on on that um, uh, on that ecosystem. So, um, unfortunately, um, uh, late last year, uh, Michael Bull uh, died uh, suddenly, and um, uh, his lead researcher died suddenly only two or three months later. Uh, Dale Berzikoff. So, uh, Professor Mike Gardner or Associate Professor Mike, Mike Gardner from Flinders has taken on that the project, but. Um, there, and he's got a symposium actually about you know to celebrate Michael Bull in coming up in, in a week or two's time. But you know they're they're in some doubt of of, of keeping their their funding for the project. So you know um, I just thought initially I saw the a couple of the, the little um, uh, um, the, I saw the, the thing from with, with Attenborough that you were talking about the program, and um, and I thought I'll do a little article on that. And I thought no bugger it, um, let's. We, I started looking for photos for, for shinglebacks, and we saw some um, some awesome photos that amateur photographers have taken. And so, what we intend to do is we intend to um, get some posters printed, signed by the by the photographers, and and sell them to raise a little bit of money for research. You know, so that's exciting. Oh, yeah. I reckon anything like that, um, you, you know, is something that you know. What, obviously, this is my interest. Uh, I'd like to get something back from it as well because it's a lot of work to do something like this. But um, by the same token, I think it's really good to to, to sort of have a finger in the, uh, you know, some sort of uh, conservation sort of pie at the t- same time, you know, or some some worthwhile project, you know. So that, yeah, there's that. I yeah, mean, yeah, that's 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 kind of really interesting. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a fantastic idea, and if if it if it could be the difference between that research on shinglebacks 
carrying on or not. I mean, yeah, what an awesome thing to be doing. So yeah, that's well, really well, cool. well, anything's good. I mean, there's okay, there's there's some posters, but that, that we're going to sell, but um. But you know any any sort of uh, anything that can raise a profile of it that may get other potential, you know, sort of um, uh, um, potentially reach someone who, who might want to sort of uh, help help finance it or whatever. That's that's all good, you know, or just raising public profile. You know, it's a bit like the Wawa you and uh, and Ben Tapley at London Zoo was really um, uh, um, excited that I wrote the um, the article. Someone sent me a photo of, of of the article stuck up somewhere in London Zoo, but. Because um, he he really wanted to raise profile, and I think that's all about, you know, going back to what I said about the the, the Beijing Zoo. You know, if they had a small Wawayu house next to the um, giant panda exhibit, well, what would that do to the millions of of people who visit that and go, wow, you know, we've got this other iconic animal, but we should be doing yeah. something about saving everybody. Oh, all the Chinese want to save the giant panda, but who wants to save the, mm. the giant salamander? You know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting you say that because um, I went to Kunming Zoo in southwest oh, yeah. China. Yep. Uh, and Kunming's supposed to be beautiful. Kunming is a fantastic place. Yeah, really cool city. Really cool vibe. Um, but the the zoo, though, I have to say, is a bit tragic. And their um, their exhibit with the giant salamander is much the same as the one you described. Just oh, so you saw one? Did you saw? Is it? It's pretty much the same. Yeah. Is it? Absolutely awesome creature. I was completely taken with it and it, it completely floored me because I was not expecting to see one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they're incredible beasts, but the, yeah, the enclosure was basically just like a bathtub that it was sitting in. Yeah. Um, and obviously no intention to breed it, uh, which is a shame, seemingly. Well, do you, how, how long do you think it would survive? <sighs> ah, do you know, I have no idea. It looked like it, it was big, so assuming it is old, um, it looked no, like I did, it was old. No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't mean that. I mean, like you know, these those animals need good quality water. They're amphibians. You know, they need they need they need really good water quality to, to keep them going. So, I mean, the one I saw in Beijing, it had a small power filter, in, inter, internal power filter in the in the in the tank. It was a four foot tank with a three foot animal. Um, yeah, and and the guy at the place we were staying at um, had a, a collection of carp and uh, no koi carp, and he, so he had all these really intricate biological filters he'd made. And I told him about it, and he said, "Look, he said you don't really understand the, the philosophy." He said um, uh, it'll die, but he said they don't really care because what they'll do is they'll just go and get another one. Mm, yeah, you know, until until they can't. Yeah, that's right. Now, obviously, I mean, you know, and again, you know. It, it, you should be looking at this in terms of a comparison with the giant panda. You know, obviously they know they can't go and get another giant panda, so they've got to look after them. And there's plenty of things that, you know, they were, they were, they were fed, they looked healthy. You know, they had lots of space mm. to roam. Um, they yeah. were breeding them as far as I remember. It looked like they were breeding because there, there was a lot of small ones. But so, you know, if that's the way they treat the giant panda, you know, like they've got to, you know, like, and it's not, this is not unique to China either, but they've got to recognize what they've got and then, and, and, you know, what's, what, what is, what is of conservation value, you know? Yeah, mm. absolutely. If they can turn that into a, you know, a mascot for something or an iconic animal or if there's some way to raise the profile that, you know, and I, and I, Ben Chapley's probably all over it, but uh, <clears throat> if there's some way that they can suddenly make that recognizable and valuable or, you know, raise the profile for Chinese people and put a, Wow, are you house next to the giant panda house? Well, you know that's that's going to be very valuable for chi- for, for conservation, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They they just need a they just need an image upgrade, don't they? Those uh, those salamanders. Yep, they need a publicist. <laughs> well, precisely, but that's that's the point of these ma- you know magazines and articles and stuff is to get word out there. And that's it. To build. That's it. Yeah, they need a spin doctor. But look. <clears throat> that's I guess as, as we're saying, that's one thing that you can do if you have a platform. Then yes, sure, you know you need your your articles about keeping and breeding bearded dragons. You know you need your articles about I, I went here, I saw this, you know, and I came back. You know, but you also need to 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 have something that is going to um, I don't know raise consciousness about about issues that probably that that may make a difference. Or, or, you know, yeah, like... Real, but, real journalism, basically. Well, yeah, it's going to sort of make a difference to people's thinking, maybe plant a seed somewhere that might have some impact, uh, some positive impact, rather than, you know, uh, I kept bearded dragons for five years, um, you know, I went to the zoo, you know. Um, 
So where does that lead? Well, that doesn't really lead anywhere. But it, it, you know, like if you can if you can have something that is that's meaningful, yeah, it's it, it's a balance, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. You you know, it's all well and good to. I, I think the same of nature documentaries quite often. I yeah. mean, Ben have talked about this, where it's all well and good to present the animals and inspire people to like them, but then if you don't if you don't present them realistically and in the context of their own impending demise, you're not really doing any good. You, you, you're totally correct. I mean, if all you do is look at some cuddly animals and people go, "Oh, that was nice," you know. I could have watched. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I could have watched uh, a rerun of uh, Indiana Jones, but I chose to watch this documentary. It was fine, you know, and I've been entertained, you know. Um, but yeah. but if there's no real if there's no real point to it, well, it, yeah, okay, it's just television, isn't it? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very true. Well said. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so, uh, have we got any more questions, Ben? I that think you? that's pretty much touched on everything we we had planned um don't forget of course that you can you can subscribe to i hope australia by going to iHopeAustralia.com.au for free <laughs> and we've got <laughs> and we've got and we've got a new another um another issue coming out uh i think it's um the first friday in november but um that is going to have something with regard to the shinglebacks i'm told mike gardner is going to contribute a little a few paragraphs um, so there's and there's some some pretty cool stuff in that. So um, yeah, have a look. Excellent. And uh, you can find iHerp on both Facebook and Twitter, can't you? Uh, I believe so. Yes, Andy's all over that. I'm, I'm not. I'm not uh, um, yeah. across the social media, but um, yeah, Mr. Round. Yeah, my, we'll, my, we'll, my, my my marketing we'll, IT man is all over that. He's been. He's uh, actually been terrific. Look, he's. He's the unseen side of it, but he's um, he's done he's he's establishing at the same time as doing this establishing a business and consultancy, and he's very good at it. So he's all over that side. So it's it's great. Couldn't happen without him. Excellent. Well, uh, we'll share all that stuff um, in the show notes and also on our Facebook page. So uh, it will be out there for everyone to see. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed our first interview there with uh, John the Gecko Wrangler McGrath. Some interesting insights into the world of herpetological publishing, a bit of article writing, and of course his adventures around and about. Uh, so, massive thanks to John. Don't forget to check out iHerp Magazine, the uh, free online magazine. Um, we'll post links in the description of the show, uh, or just Google it. Uh, it, it really is great. It's well worth a read. And as we've already said, it's completely free. So really, there's no reason not to. Exactly. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, we're uh, at Herp Highlights on Twitter. We've got a Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Herp Highlights. And email is herphighlights at gmail.com. So uh, as always, thank you for listening. A massive thank you to uh, John. Yeah, cheers. Cheers, everybody. Thanks. Cheers.